Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and co-host of the 35 West podcast. Professional Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. Washington has been a buzz lately with discussions on AUKUS, the newly established security partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. AUKUS has made waves, in particular, as a result of its focus on helping Australia operate, acquire, and eventually build its own nuclear-powered attack submarines, or SSNs. But the agreement goes well beyond that to touch on emerging technologies and providing greater deterrence to revisionist and revanchist powers. Notably, or perhaps expectedly, Canada was absent from the initial AUKUS discussions. And while Ottawa is now apparently considering the benefits of the agreement, Canada's defense capabilities remain woefully out of sync with that of its allies. To delve into the modern security challenges Canada faces, the urgent need to update Canada's strategic posture, and the role AUKUS can play in this effort, we're joined today by Vincent Rigby, a senior advisor with the CSIS Americas program and visiting professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Vincent previously served as the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada and is a seasoned policy and intelligence expert with more than 30 years of experience in public service. In this episode, we'll unpack the mounting security challenges faced by Canada how AUKUS could help plug some of the gaps in Canadian defence strategy, and what Canada can offer the current AUKUS allies in turn. Thank you for joining us today, Vincent. My pleasure, Chris. It's great to be here. As a founding NATO ally, Five Eyes member, and partner with the U.S. on North American Aerospace Defence Command, Canada is a member of storied and robust security partnerships. However, Canada has been reluctant to live up to its alliance commitments or to join new security arrangements like AUKUS. Vincent, let's start at the beginning. Why was Canada not part of the original AUKUS group? And why has it taken so long for the Canadian government to consider joining up? Well, this is a great first question to start with, Chris. And really, I think it's it's the $128,000 question. Was Canada invited? And if they were invited, did they, in fact, say, say no? We don't know that answer. We don't know it definitively. No one in government has stood up and categorically said we weren't invited and we said no or that we weren't interested I'd say on that last point, there have been some comments made publicly, including by the Minister of National Defense, that on balance, Canada was not particularly interested. And that uh, in the words of the Minister of National Defense, this was really about submarines. It was about nuclear-powered submarines. It was about getting nuclear-powered submarines in the hands of Australians. This is not a route that Canada is going to be looking into anytime soon. I think the words she used were, we're pursuing a different path, something along those lines. So why would we be interested in this deal? The problem with that is, of course, it's not just a submarine deal, and we'll get into that maybe a little bit later. There's much more to it than that. But I think the prevailing sense here in Ottawa and amongst Canadian commentators is that perhaps that's the way the Minister of National Defense feels. But at the end of the day, it doesn't look like Canada was actually invited and that this was actually from the beginning, the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia focused on defending their interests in the Indo-Pacific region. And yes, there is a submarine aspect to all of this, but it's much broader than just submarines. And it's about defense technical cooperation writ large across a a range of, of different capabilities. So were we invited? My sense is no. I think that especially in the fall of 2021, before our Indo-Pacific strategy came out, we were seen as a minimal player in the region. And 
Canada, I think this was almost 18 months ago, with respect to China, hadn't quite come around yet. Um, in the most recent Indo-Pacific strategy, China is finally recognized as a disruptive global power, but I'm not sure the government was totally there, at least in a public sense back then. So it's a little bit of chicken and egg here, what happened, but my, my sense is never asked. And then there were some communication lines afterwards to try and cover this over, a little bit of embarrassment that we weren't asked, well, hey, even if we'd been asked, this really isn't our cup of tea because we're not interested in acquiring nuclear-powered subs. That makes some sense. You mentioned a minute ago that in terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy, that Canada was just really not considered a player in that. Is it your sense that AUKUS is really only focused on Indo-Pacific? Because certainly the U.S. has a Pacific coastline. Obviously, Australia is right there smack in the middle. But the U.K. is way out in the Atlantic or close to the North Sea. So is this just focused on the Indo-Pacific or is it focused on SSN capability for that region, but also a little bit more globally? And as such, wouldn't it be attractive to Canada, which has commitments in the Arctic as well, and also the Atlantic, in addition to, as you said, a minimal presence, but but one where it's trying to increase a little bit in the Indo-Pacific? Absolutely. I think you're 100% right. I think it's both at the end of the day, that there, there's perhaps an Indo-Pacific focus in the sense that Australia is there. Australia is going to acquire nuclear-powered subs over over time, and that we have a very aggressive power like China in that region right now. And the U.S. is looking at ways to work with allies in countering that threat. But what always got me when the deal was first announced in the fall of 2021, and there were questions about why was Canada not invited and Canada was an Indo-Pacific nation. I said, well, the U.K. is not an Indo-Pacific nation. Uh, The U.K. has interests in the Indo-Pacific without a doubt. And certainly I think they have global and other regional aspirations. That's that's for sure. But I think for the UK, this is about capability, full stop, and having uh, nuclear-powered subs, latest generation, next generation nuclear-powered subs. And so whether it is in the Indo-Pacific or it's in the North Atlantic, I think it's the ability for allies to be interoperable and to respond to threats throughout the globe. Australia is very focused in the Indo-Pacific region. We know that. Um, They're not a member of NATO. But for the United States and the UK, I think that... The things that come out of this agreement, not just on submarines, but in other areas with respect to artificial intelligence, quantum systems, that sort of thing, those are going to be applicable to capabilities and operations worldwide. So you're 100% right. When we we talk about Canada, if Canada were to join, whether it be Pillar 1 or Pillar 2, Pillar 1 just for the submarines, highly unlikely, Pillar 2 for these other uh, possible capabilities, defense technological cooperation to enhance those capabilities, Yes, without a doubt, those could be used in platforms throughout throughout the globe. Let's turn back the focus for a second just on subs. You said a minute ago that you thought it would be highly unlikely that, that Canada would join Pillar 1. And it's an area where great power competition with, with the melting Arctic is, is probably going to increase. The Russians are being much more active and are investing in their military capabilities in their Arctic uh, coastline. And China is also becoming more active in the region. Yet Canada has these four aging diesel-electric submarines purchased secondhand from the UK in the late 1990s, which from the get-go have had problems with maintenance, and they simply don't have the same capability that SSNs do have um, in the ice-covered Arctic, even, even as the Arctic is changing due to climate change. So 
What role do subs play in Canada's national defense strategy? And what are the risks from our outdated uh, Victoria-class fleet? And, and shouldn't we really actually be considering SSNs as a viable alternative? So submarines, I think, are at the core of the Canadian Armed Forces' combat capability. I mean, we're, we like to pitch ourselves as a serious country on the international stage and in terms of defending our own sovereignty. And if you're a serious country, you have a serious armed force. And so we've always looked at our armed forces as being a term that we used back in the 1990s when I first joined the Department of National Defense and is still used in some variation, a combat-capable multi-purpose force. This is a, a force that, that includes Army, Navy, Air Force, Special Operations Forces. And when it comes to the Navy, it's above surface with maritime patrol aircraft and, and what have you, surface, including frigates. We have to replace those, supply ships, et cetera, and then subsurface. And that includes, obviously, submarines. So if you're a serious military, you need submarines and you hit the nail on the head. At, at home, we have three coasts, Pacific, Atlantic, Arctic, longest coastline in the world. Serious issues in the Arctic in particular, I think, as you say, with Russian activity, potential Chinese activity, this could be the next front in terms of hostile state activity. So we need these subs. and. Senior military people have come and said quite plainly that we need to replace the subs that we have. As you say, they were purchased in 1998 from the UK, and they they are uh, woefully out of date in terms of the technology. And there's just a lot of wear and tear. You know, they've been all over the globe over the last 20 years. And yes, they've been they've been riddled with all kinds of different problems. One of the submarines on its maiden voyage, I think, back in 2003, 2004. It ended up being set on fire. And so it began a long history of, of repairs and problems right across the, the fleet. So we need, and I think the government accepts, and certainly on the advice of the Canadian Armed Forces, we need a submarine capability, and not just domestically, but also internationally. Again, if we're a member of NATO, we're a member of, of NORAD. So if there are international deployments, submarines are an extremely important uh, capability and our ability to to be interoperable with allied forces means that again you have that full you have that full range of capabilities. So your question, what role do they play in terms of our national security policy, our national defense strategy? It's a pretty central role. Why have we not gone with nuclear-powered subs? We have toyed with the idea in the past. In fact, more than toyed with it. In 1987, it was actually in the defense white paper. And the idea was to purchase, I believe it was four nuclear-powered subs. This, of course, was at in the waning days of the Cold War, but we still felt that the Cold War was going to be around for a long time. No one expected that the Berlin Wall was going to fall a couple of years later and the Soviet Union was going to disappear a couple of years after that. So we were in for the long haul in terms of, of acquiring nuclear-powered subs. They never were purchased, A, because the Cold War came to an end, and B, because there was sticker shock, I think, in terms of the price. And I think that when the strategy was written, we knew they were going to be expensive, but it's it's the price of, of being a serious player during a very dangerous time in global politics. But once the Cold War receded, uh, I think it was, do we really want to pay this much now? And so when Minister Anand stands up and says, we pretty much decided already we don't want to go the route of nuclear-powered subs, she probably has in mind, again, the sticker price. <laughs> And so for the Australians, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 billion US dollars over 20, 30 years. It's a huge commitment for a single capability, a single capability. It would be unprecedented 
for the Canadian Armed Forces to put that kind of money into a single capability. This is coming at the same time that we need to replace the frigates, and that's going to be hugely expensive. The, the cost estimates are going through the roof already, and we've got other capabilities in the Arctic that we have to replace. So do you want to go diesel or do you want to go nuclear-powered? Would nuclear power be more effective? Absolutely. We all know that in terms of detection, in terms of stealth, in terms of lethality. It's the way to go. And I think especially in the Arctic where you want them to operate under under ice, even if we think that the Arctic is one day going to be ice-free, that's still a ways off. But you know, just straight up, Chris, just you and I talking, yes, go nuclear-powered subs. But I'm not the one briefing the Minister of National Defense saying, if you go this route, you can't get this over here, X, Y, and Z. So you have to prioritize. And that's where I think the government is. But nothing I don't think has gone to government yet in terms of which way to go. The government's saying publicly, we probably don't want to go down that route, but who knows, that that could change. And if you join AUKUS, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, baby steps towards that would go nuclear. I think also in Canada, there's always, it, you know, we're not New Zealand, but there's always a little bit of ooh, nuclear and people immediately think they're nuclear armed. They're SSBNs, not just SSNs. No matter how much of a communication strategy we put in place to, to make it clear these were just nuclear powered, there's still that you know, environmental sort of lobby group view of, uh, you know, we really don't want to go there. So I don't know if the government wants to touch that either. No, I, I know that the question of social license, as in uh, society really finding this acceptable or not, is, is a question that the Australians are struggling with. They know that they that there is support for AUKUS in Australia amongst the population, but they're conscious of this, uh, the use of nuclear, even though it's, it's obviously made very clear that we're talking about conventionally armed, yet nuclear-powered submarines. But this question of social license is a big one and a challenge for the Australian government. They've said so publicly, particularly given that the country does not have any nuclear power generating installations. They do have some nuclear bio equipment manufacturing, but not uh, they don't have nuclear power plants like Canada does. So that may be an issue as well that would have to be challenged. But I, I come back to this notion of the Cold War coming back. Is it coming back a new Cold War 2.0? Or it, it might be very different from the last one. But in a context where we are in a much more dangerous environment, perhaps calculations will change and, and nuclear submarines could be back on the table. It also strikes me that Canada is going to make any huge investments in any of its defense equipment. It really should be buying the best stuff available and not make compromises. I totally agree. There's a lot of rust out. There is a lot of equipment that needs to get purchased. Decisions will have to be made. But this goes back to a bigger debate in Canada about the role of defense. You talked about a new strategic environment, a new threat environment, the possibility of Cold War 2.0. For the average Canadian, their head's just not there. And, and so we continue, I think, to grapple. We being people like you and I, defense commentators, but government as well, trying to convince a Canadian politician that it's a very dangerous, very unpredictable world out there and that this does have implications for Canada. But unfortunately, in Canada, traditionally, we've not seen the threat the way our allies have, especially those who are closer to where the action is, whether it's you know, in, in certain parts of the Indo-Pacific or in Europe. The threats are seen as being very, very far away. You know, The old Raoul Denderine line senator from the 1920s in Canada who said that Canada lives in a fireproof house far from inflammable materials. And so there's still that perception and that the U.S. is always going to take care of us. So when we get into debates about subs and, and all that money, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. I think most Canadians supported 
buying the F-35s and all the money that's going to go in, in, into those uh, aircraft. But at a certain point, Canadians always uh, kind of go, boy, why are we putting so much money into the military? I don't care how dangerous the world is. I'm more concerned about my dental plan, my health care, inflation, those sorts of things. So the guns butter debate in Canada is always front and center. I know it's there in every country, but I find it's particularly acute in, in Canada. So that's why the, the sticker price for nuclear powered subs, if we can get conventionally powered subs a lot, lot cheaper, and we think they can basically do the job, let's do it. Uh, we don't need a Cadillac here. And that's that's the take. We don't need a Cadillac. We can we can get by with a Toyota Corolla. No offense against anybody who owns a Toyota Corolla. My wife owns a Toyota Corolla. She loves them. As long as it doesn't have an engine fire. <laughs> exactly. I want to stick with this this discussion about sort of bread and butter issues versus versus defense. Like, it strikes me that that Canada is still in this posture, or or is slowly becoming aware to a much more dangerous world. Canada is, after all, providing significant support, given its own capabilities, to the Ukrainians to help defend themselves against Russia's war of aggression. And China has been meddling in Canadian politics. It has engaged in hostage diplomacy with the two Michaels. It's even had some very aggressive trade moves with Canada. Aren't these things kind of sinking in finally and and helping people sort of wrap their heads around the need for stronger defense? I think it's a great question. And and again, I, I said $128,000 question. This is another $28,000 question. Is it sinking in? Certainly in the early days of the Russian aggression against Ukraine, front page of Canadian newspapers, the Globe and Mail, everybody was talking about it. I think a lot of Canadians are going, holy cow, this is a, this is a different world. But with each passing month as the war has gone on, I think Canadians talk a lot less about it, and it's kind of faded from memory uh, almost. So again, I, I think that the government needs to do a better job of just articulating how serious the threat is and, and how dangerous the world the world is. But the good thing is, if there's a good thing to come out of this, a silver lining for, for Canadians in terms of how we could we could step up, we are talking more about it. So you mentioned Chinese foreign interference, other hostile state activities, from Russia as as well, the Ukraine war. There is more of a public discourse now, and the government has taken steps. What I've always found in Canada is that governments take steps when there's pressure, when it comes to defense, national security. They tend to wait until they're backed into a corner, then they, they finally start to move. So they're being backed into a corner now in terms of events that are happening, but also, I think, just in terms of the pressure they're starting to get. So we're seeing it on the foreign interference side now where we're hopefully going to set up a foreign agent registry and finally align ourselves with Australia and the United States in that in that respect and be able to actually respond to foreign interference. We did purchase the F-35s. We have taken some other steps to upgrade capability. We're undertaking a defense update right now. So I don't want to give the sense that the government has been sitting on its hands and doing absolutely nothing. The defense policy from 2017, Strong, Secure, and Engage, is a great it's a great defense policy. And I, and I don't always say that because my wife who owns that Corolla was one of the pens on it. It's a, it's a good document. But was it fully funded? Are they spending the money? Are they getting the money out the door? Are they getting the things they need to do? We're notoriously slow with these things. Um, and so we need to, we still need to do more. And as I say, I'm glad to see the debate finally happening. We're, we're having more conversations now about security, about national security, about foreign policy, about defense. People are speaking up. Whether that's going to move the government far enough along, in my view, 
it's difficult to say. It's really, really difficult to say. But the pressure is there. And, you know, we'll talk about some of the other things that have happened recently in terms of 2% and the debate over that. But I think that the government is finally starting to feel the heat a little bit from the international security environment, the Canadian public, but also their allies. And their allies are starting, I think, to say, hey, Canada, where are you? Which is, I think, one of the reasons why they were not asked to join AUKUS. Vincent, while the, the submarine component of AUKUS, I, I don't think should be ignored by Canada, it is only one of, of two pillars. You know, essentially, AUKUS is really a bold strategy to align the three countries' defense and technology sectors to develop the next generation of military capabilities in, in cyber, in AI, in counter hypersonics, in hypersonics, in unmanned underwater capabilities and other things. These are the so-called two-pillar uh, components and, and, and focus on these critical technologies. What's the value of this second pillar to Canada? And how could Canada benefit from engaging in that aspect of AUKUS? Well, I think there are clear benefits. And I do believe that the government is finally waking up to those potential benefits. Maybe they knew about them all, all along, but just decided that the time was not right. But the government is starting to make noise that hey, we, we do want to get in here on the party. And Minister Anand recently specifically mentioned some of those technologies that, uh, that you just referred to, Chris. So for Canada, I think, to get access to some of this technology with applicability or application to military equipment, whether it's artificial intelligence, quantum, cyber, subsurface surveillance, hypersonic defense. It's a very, very long list. Again, if we want to be a serious country with a serious military, these are the tools of the future battle space. And so if we want to have an efficient and effective military that's going to be able to operate with our allies, we need our hands on this technology. And so a chance to work with the Brits and the Australians and the Americans and help develop this technology, help get access to it, that's that's a clear win for us. And in my view, quite frankly, it's not really an option. <laughs> I mean, if we do want to be considered a serious country and we do want to be a serious military, we need this stuff. Otherwise, we are going to be relegated to the bottom tier of, of military powers. And I don't think I don't think we want that. I think it's also of use for Canada in terms of our international reputation to step forward. So beyond just the pure military capabilities and the technology and possible knock-on effects for industry and so on and so forth, because they're, without a doubt, it, it would, I think, add to our prosperity, our economic prosperity to be engaged in these sorts of things. It would help restore our international reputation, I think, to, to join AUKUS. And so the narrative out there right now is we're not really a player. And so we're not in AUKUS, we're not in the quadrilateral dialogue with India, Japan, US, Australia. We're not at a lot of other tables. The perception out there that we're not taking all that seriously anymore. We saw that in the leaked intelligence that was revealed in the Washington Post. A lot of countries saying Canada is not really a player. We join AUKUS. I think that's going to really help our international reputation, but it shouldn't just be about reputation. It's, a, it's about defending your, your national interest, defending your sovereignty and sending some clear messages. And I, I honestly think in the, in the context of, of AUKUS, this would, this would send a clear message to China that we're not a patsy. And I, I do think that China tends to take Canada a little bit for granted right now and, and that they can treat us a certain way, that we're not a player. And, and the Chinese often refer to us as the, the U.S. lapdog. 
but not in a sense of stepping up, just we're kind of over there and we're patted on the head. If we're, if, if we're going to be perceived as a lapdog, at least be, you know, a lapdog that is contributing and that has is, teeth. it got some teeth. Thank you. I was trying to push the metaphor. I was trying to find how to do it. And you <laughs> did it for me. Thank you. But yeah, let's have, let's be a lap dog with teeth. Let's not have that as the headline. But, uh, honestly, I think that, uh, uh you know, would not make the Chinese happy. The Chinese are not happy with AUKUS writ large, but for Canada to join, I think it might actually help in sending a message about things like foreign interference and other hostile state activities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and it, just, just to stick with this for a minute. You know, Canada would benefit, as you've said, both from receiving uh, some of these technologies and also uh, it would it would clearly send a message to to our adversaries. But doesn't Canada also actually have a lot to offer the three partners too, in terms of, you know, the, the Canadian IT sector, which has a lot of uh, companies that are doing important work on AI. There's a lot of startups in the AI. We have, you know, quite a bit of, of cyber capabilities you know, Canada is is obviously rich in, in in critical minerals, which are essential components for submarines, by the way, but also for for many other many other uh, things that are that are, are built uh, as part of you know our our, our defense uh, equipment. And um, you know, there's also a, an important element here in terms of Canada being the only country in the world that's exempt from ITAR regulation. So. We have a lot to offer as well. Shouldn't shouldn't the partners be interested in us, even if we're you know maybe far from joining Pillar One? Absolutely. So if you flip it around, what do we get out of it? And then what do the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. get out of it? It's almost a mirror image in, in some ways. They get access to a lot of our expertise, uh, a lot of our technology. Uh, we are right up there in terms of artificial intelligence. We are right up there in terms of quantum systems, cyber, critical minerals. We have huge critical mineral deposits in Canada, particularly in Northern Ontario. We just recently unveiled a critical mineral strategy to try and friendshore our, our supply chains. We're working very closely with the Americans and the Mexicans on, on protecting our, our critical mineral supply chain. So um, this, I think, would be a huge boon for AUKUS. And I mean, I think it's really important that that, that we do bring something to the table because AUKUS is not a talk shop. It's clearly not a talk shop. So if we're going to join, we're, we're not going to be allowed to join unless we bring something. And that's what we're going to bring. The second thing we're going to bring, and again, it's the mirror image of what Canada is going to get. I think this will add to the reputation of AUKUS. And again, it will play into the U.S. strategy of we want our allies and our friends at our side as we navigate this new global security environment. So it sends a message to the Chinese. It sends a message to the Russians, the North Koreans, the Iranians that, that the United States, Australia, UK have others at their side as part of the Western alliance and especially in a five eyes context. You know, and if, and if, if New Zealand ends up joining, we're starting to hear rumblings that they, that they might join pillar two. Wouldn't it be great if you had New Zealand and Canada, uh, a five eyes on the defense technology cooperation side together? Uh, because as, as we all know, the Chinese like, nothing better than to divide and conquer. And so I think that when you have greater numbers, everybody rowing in the same direction, everybody on board, that does send a signal. And I, I know the, the Chinese have made a lot of noise about as, as AUKUS gets more serious and, and they start talking about, about submarine acquisitions, et cetera, that this is, this is actually going to exacerbate the prospects for a second cold war. It's going to lead to arms proliferation and arms race, et cetera, et cetera. I look at it just the other way in, in bringing all these countries together. This is a deterrence and this could 
possibly prevent war because it's sending a signal uh don't don't step over a certain line here because we we mean business and that's why we're doing this so the more that are on board i think not necessarily too many i think there's always going to be a sweet spot i don't think the u.s is going to open the doors and say come one come all everybody join but for the five eyes allies to join and bring something to the party uh i think that uh, they'd be very very happy in canada canada does bring something Vincent, is there anything uh, that we didn't cover? Any anything else that you'd like to highlight or, or add? No, I just think it's a very exciting time for Canada with respect to AUKUS. There's an opportunity here. There really is an opportunity, and I think that conversations like this, the one that that we're having and in other forums, I think it's going to be helpful, really helpful. And I do get the sense that the government is finally on that track to joining. We'll see how long it takes, but I'm crossing my fingers that it will happen in the relatively near future. We thank you for taking the time with speaking with us, and we hope to uh, talk about this, hopefully with some news in the next few months, to talk about this again and, and maybe other topics on, on Canadian defence or Canadian-U.S. defence cooperation. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Chris. Real pleasure to be on the show and look forward to having another conversation in the future. And that's it for this week's edition of 35 West. We hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes.